Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters with Daniel, Nat and Mon for this week, ending Friday the 24th of November. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the pod, Nat receives a game-changing gift for the kitchen for Weird Science. Chris KP runs the his shiny new data up the flagpole. We're joined by the freshly minted Senior Australian of the Year for Victoria, Glenis Uges and Laura Pietrobon reviews the new memoir from Britney Spears. Giving us the down and dirty details of Argentina's new president, Javier Millet, we were joined in studio by senior lecturer at RMIT, Binoy Campmark. Adam Christou was here for Game Changers talking about the super spooky new one, Alan Wake 2. We were joined by Jessica Au, author of Cold Enough for Snow and recent recipient of the 2023 Prime Minister's Literary Award for Fiction. And Bride's Head Revisited meets Indie Sleaze on the new film Saltburn and Simone Boldy came in to review it. Triple R. Let's talk our favourite kitchen utensils. Oh, here we go, baby. Yeah, yeah. I was gifted a mortar and pestle and a serrated knife oh. just the other day. I know. I took the serrated knife for a spin for a cut just first time yesterday through the sourdough. Wowee, didn't know what I'd been missing. Like the fabric Sorry, softener. Is this your first time using no, a bread knife? No, it's not my first time using a serrated <laughs> knife. Definitely not. A good one, a, a sharp one. one. I didn't realise. Mm. I'd been hacking through loaves. With butter knives. Yeah, this just glided. Yeah. It was amazing. I would say serrated knives are in my top five to seven, like utensils. If I had to pick a knife, I would definitely pick serrated. And they're really good at cutting things that smush. So okay. They stop them from smooshing. Oh, how do you mean? So like if <laughs> because often with a knife you have to like push down on it and it squashes what you what you're cutting. Mm-hmm. Like a vanilla slice it all splurts yes. out the sides. Cut it with a bread knife keeps it intact. Or like a soft I made I made chicken sandwiches yep. on grand final day Gorgeous. and to cut them use a use a bread knife and they stay all they stay in good shape. <laughs> Cuz what is it is it cuz you've got it's got a bit more grip? From the yeah, serrate, you yeah, you serrated edges. You can move it back and forth mm. without having to push down. Yeah, a bit more control moving you know, through. This has been Kitchen Corner. Yeah, Kitchen tips. Corner. So here we go, a bit of a hypothetical scenario. So you walk into a house, maybe your house sitting, let's say, mm-hmm. some friends place and they've got a well-stocked kitchen. What would be your like most like – drawer or cupboard you'd be most excited to open if you're going to cook something or you're maybe deciding what you're going to cook for me definitely what I love to scope out the most in other people's kitchens with their permission is the second drawer down from Mm. the cullery drawer like for me that's where the party is in the kitchen we're talking ladles spatulas exactly ladles spatulas you got your, your novelty bottle openers, maybe some magnets that they've taken off the fridge. You've got maybe your nans, like 70s, like old kitchen, like spoons. Yeah, that's for me. you got your – well, here's one – a question for you. Mm. Do you think the peeler or the bottle opener goes in the top cutlery drawer or the second? Uh, I put both. (laughs) <laughs> Both, so you double up. But yeah. Wow, decadence. Yeah, I, I, I am. You do love to cash you, Triple R. <laughs> um, thanks for all your, your donations over Radiothon. Um, I think I think I keep the peeler in the top drawer in on the left hand side. On the left hand, but bottle opener in the second drawer. Okay, interesting. Mm. What about you, Daniel? Yeah, if it's small, it's in the top drawer, and yeah, bottle opener is in the second drawer because that should be used less. 
<laughs> ideally. It reminds me, Tripod had a song, Second Draw Down. Did they? I got to listen. And everything's in the second draw down. But, uh, I mean, I bought a potato masher the other day <gasps> and I was like, I, surely. And maybe, I'm sure if I went to a better a more equipped place, mm. I'd feel like the technology was better. It just felt very rudimentary. Mm. You really have to put a lot of weight behind it. I was like, well, there were two options. One of them, but both of them had a flat base, yep. i.e. just, a, a, you know, the metal sheet with holes in it that the potato goes through. I'm like, well, what, what if we folded and did multiple folds of the metal so oh. that as the potato went through, it went through two or three mm. holes before multi-layered. it multi-layered so you're getting three out of one push wow okay, okay. this is going to be one of your I'd love ideas to, <laughs> i'd love to see a drawing of this and yeah. then we could potentially take this to shark tank yeah, mm. yeah it's just a condensed s really yeah. <laughs> okay but do you enjoy a mash? Do you enjoy like not so much that I want to like hang out and like I romanticize mashing to the extent where I want to prolong the process. Mm. Uh, and and also I suppose a rolling pin. I don't know if people use to what degree people use rolling pins. Yeah, I know it's obviously associated with I don't know running out in your dressing gown after a bunch yeah, of scallywags. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, good for baking and that you know obviously. Yeah. yeah, but someone, I think good knives, like I don't know what drawer I would peruse if I was house-sitting someone with a good kitchen, but a good kitchen always has good knives. Yes. And someone has said on the text line that their wife travels to Japan once a year and brings home very sharp Japanese steel because they're known for their knives. Well, let's hope it's not in carry-on. Brings in a carry-on, no case on it, just <laughs> brandishes mm. them around. They're married to Britney Spears, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Posted on Instagram while she's in the in the gate well, waiting to board. There, there are videos online of people cutting things, and I think maybe it's under the headline of, like, oddly satisfying, I suppose. Mm. But sharp knives is a bit of a... I don't want to over-egg it and say fetish or whatever, but people mm. enjoy watching sharp knives. Mm-hmm. Or like you cut through something like butter. And like they did, yeah, with, you know, what Tim, what's his name? I don't know. But the, or Big Kev even, mm. cutting through leather shoes and stuff. But, but a, <laughs> a single, yeah, yeah. But it's a single piece of paper <gasps> and just cutting oh. and seeing it slice without any pushback. Oof. That's like, wow, that could cut your finger off, it looks like. Oh, easily. That does something to my, like, senses just Tingling. hearing that. Right. Yeah, it, like, makes my teeth feel funny, like, thinking that, about um, cutting paper. There's that scene in The Bodyguard where uh, you haven't seen it a hundred times like me, but she, she throws up a silk scarf and he it lands <gasps> on, like, a samurai sword and, sword and, Cuts and it. just it just falls apart. It's like, wow, that's so sharp. You're so sexy, Kevin Costner. Mm. Yeah, we've moved off from kitchen chat. But, uh, well, there must just... be samurais out there who don't keep the upkeep of their sword and it's like Nat cutting bread before the... <laughs> <laughs> just pushing it down. <laughs> Someone did say that, and this I got two texts about this, Yeah, uh, that masher prototype, it all, it'll get caught in between. Mm. It'll get stuck in the layers. Yeah, bang it. Who cares? Bang it out on the side of the pot. People always bang it. Yeah. You've got to bang it anyway. I find it quite satisfying once you've kind of got the mash to a nice kind of creamy place, watching it kind of ooze out, like through the the shape. Yeah. Putting it into the mash I think is kind of fun. I like it because I don't like the design. I like the classic square grid design because I know there's some that are just squiggle lines. Oh, we're really good. That was one of those things that I thought was unnecessary. I'm like a whole thing. Oh, like a, not an appliance, but a tool, a utensil that just does one thing. Mm. So I, f- I think it's a waste. Okay, just use a 
fork. Okay, mm. miss, she loves but a salad need, spinner. I don't need a lot of you. <laughs> just sign me up. Here's my other masher add-on. Add it would be, let's say you do have one where it comes out like an L shape. What about if it clicks so that you can store it and it's flat? Oh, oh. hang on, what? So it doesn't take up room in your drawer. Exactly. That's fine. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, okay, great. So as long as it folds. Um, also, multi-use. Someone said rolling pin is great for a foot massager. Oh, wow. Oh. I've never eaten anything you <laughs> Let's hope that they've got separate going. I mean, <laughs> I th- I'm okay with the single-use kitchen utensils because like, I love a peeler. Like, do, Yeah, but you use peeler to make ribbons. What ribbon? You know, like if you make like ribbons of carrot or cucumber or something, you know, you use that, put that in a salad. Or a yeah, sandwich. which is also just another version of peeling, isn't but it? But I'm one? thinking of peeling and discarding the peel. Okay. I'm saying you use it to, to yeah. fashion. Things. Yeah, peeler, grater. What about you? What's your highlight? What's my highlight? Or, or your favorite utensil? Oh, I don't know. I don't okay, know. sorry. I it's pick. a tough question. It's like choosing your, your top five films or Andrew's something. Andrew's worried that the multi-layer potato masher would puree the potato. Mm. I, in my estimation, no that's actually a, a testament to the quality of the idea. <laughs> I thought you'd want to puree. <laughs> um, it's so instantly an exceptional mash, it turns it instantly into baby food. We, we, need, we, need a sketch, we need a sketch of this and a prototype ASAP, I think. We'll put it on the socials. Melbourne's own Triple R. We're jumping into the wonderful world of vexillology for Weird Science this week with Chris KP. Morning, Chris. Uh, hello, I'm impressed that you know the word. Well, it's uh, quiz, quiz shows. There's always someone with a, a flag obsession. <laughs> but that's true. Actually, it's, it is something that is easy to get obsessed with. Uh, and I'm not normally that person, <laughs> but I may have become that person. Yeah. I don't even know how this came about. But I, yes, I was just asking myself this question around. You know, you, you see the variety of flags, just the, the different approaches people take. National flags. National flags. Yep. National flags. Now, some of them are really ge- geometric and, I guess, abstract, and others are really not. They're really quite literal. Um, and, of course, if you think about a national flag, however it came to be, whatever the bureaucratic process was to get it where it is, it's an attempt to represent who you are. So in history, what your values are, what your aspirations are, and where you want to fit in the world. Mm. And, of course, when you say fit in the world, that's not just, you know, you and your house or you and your politics. That's you and the earth and the things in it, which, which I think was a bit that triggered me to go, so what do we think is important in the world? What do we want to get associated mm. with? Anyway, so the story is, like, the analysis I did of it was basically all 196-odd national, UN-recognised national flags. Um, if you've declared your backyard a country, I didn't include that flag. <laughs> and I wish I had, because I think that'd be interesting. I just didn't have the data all the time. <laughs> um, uh, so I've, and I've immediately written off anyone whose flag was purely and simply just geometry and shapes, um, which is quite a lot. It's a it's about it's just over a third, I think, of flags have only that. Now, they all mean something. So I'm not for a moment suggesting they don't mean something, but I don't see that meaning straight away. I have to think about it or ask somebody. So I've gone for quite a literal interpretation. That said, there was a number of flags where I had to dig into it a bit because I'm going, that looks like a quadruped. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. So I had to find out what these things were. Why they're there, that was not the concern at this point. Um, I'm tr- I was trying to be, I guess, objective in some ways. Interestingly, let me ask you this. Uh, what is a Quetzal? 
No idea. No, I don't know. Random guesses, no one? Okay. I never heard of it either. Like it's a, a bird. Pretzel? Oh, it's, okay. like a pre- it's like a pretzel with wings, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I took a if, No, if it, was a pre- if it was a pretzel and it had feathers and was green <laughs> okay. uh, and lived in Guatemala, yeah, it'd be a pretzel. But yeah, a quetzal, specifically a resplendent quetzal, uh, is a bird. There are animals on uh, more than a third of it. 36 flags have animals. Noting that this data is cumulative. So some flags have more than one thing. Some of them have got loads of things. That's one of the things that jumped out at me as I did this. Um, there were some flags, uh, for example, uh, the Canadian flag has one piece of one plant. Very simple, very elegant. Mm. Others have just got everything. It's a menagerie that mm. just chucks stuff on Unless there. Unless is more, perhaps. Well, maybe, Sometimes. yeah. Because if you're looking into it, it, it gets hard to see. You, you don't appreciate it, I guess. Mm. So, yes, there are 19 birds, uh, nine eagles, one condor. Uh, also uh, a frigate bird. Um, and the Quetzals I mentioned, and a parrot. There's one. Dominica has a parrot on their flag, which is quite nice. It's the only parrot that I think I found. Uh, mammals are important, and but not quite as important as I thought. Insofar as I thought there'd be more. Uh, there's there's only 16 flags that have mammals, so I thought there'd be more than that. Mm. But there there's some overrepresentation too. There are nine lions in that 16. Mm. Uh, you know, because they're big and powerful and scary. Um, and instinct in lots of places. It's kind of like Melbourne with trams. Like we think we own trams. <laughs> yes. Then you look. I, oh wait, all these other cities got trams. I went through all of primary school thinking we're the, the only, only place one. in the world. <laughs> oh, I was like, no. what a great city we live in. I'm, I'm sure I put it into multiple presentations. Oh, <laughs> Staring at the line on your pencil case. Oh, that's still so... to this day. That's what she's known for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tram, <Her> tram presentations. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can get up to the trams too. Yes, I had that realization too. Um, exactly. That realisation that it's really not that exciting after all. In fact, I heard a guy on the radio today talking about um, trams in Melbourne and making the point that we still have the world's largest tram network. Oh, right. Yes, There's the that's claim. Okay. There's the claim. It's just added in, in the yeah. southern hemisphere. <laughs> yeah. There's a caveat there. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, so the lines are overrepresented, but in order to, to, to almost counter that, uh, llamas appear, oh. um, goats appear, there's a weasel. I guess a goat and a weasel on the Croatian flag. That's cool. Uh, there's really? a horse. Yep. Check this out. There's a Uroc, or at least a Uroc skull. What's a Uroc again? I didn't know either. <laughs> um, a Uroc is an extinct bovine, basically. It's a big old primitive cow that doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, so that skull appears on the Moldavian flag. Um, a Vicunia, which is kind of the ancestral, uh, it's, it's the ancestor of alpacas. Uh, they appear on the, on the Peruvian flag, uh, as does the only invertebrate. They have a cornucopia shell oh. on their flag as well. Only yeah. one the shell. only invertebrate. Only invertebrate that appears I'm on a net that I, that I remember. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing because I'm going, well, hang on. If, you want, if you're starting a new country, by the way, if your backyard is the country, there is a lot of invertebrates waiting. All those yeah. snails and yeah. slaters and flies and worms, jellyfish. Mm. Is the idea you don't want your citizens to be associated with being spineless? Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe they're resilient. Mm. I don't yeah, know. Exactly. Uh, there are, there's kind of three reptiles because um, there's one rattlesnake, thanks, Mexico, uh, I think. Um, but there's two dragons. I don't know if they're reptiles. Are dragons reptiles is the question <laughs> I, I couldn't answer. So well, there's a, you know. You know, there are, you can't, there are dragons that are a type of lizard. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. So that's a good point. I could be a dragon and stuff. That's a very good point. They weren't. They didn't look like no. They're mythological, like the well, Welsh flag. Hey, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not going to. Ju- <laughs> I'm not going to judge their <laughs> mythology or their reality. But sure. Um, yeah. Okay. So we'll call them reptiles. Great. There's three reptiles. I'm happy with that. Totally happy with that. Um, there is also a lot of plants, uh, a lot of olive and laurel. I got bored of you know, mm. putting olive into the spreadsheet and laurel into the spreadsheet. Uh, Mexico also has, uh, as well as a rattlesnake, has a cactus. 
Cool. Uh, What's yep. the flag that has a, a mongoose? Is there a flag that has a mongoose on it? I don't think it? so. Oh, okay. Well, another presentation I did in grade <laughs> five. <laughs> Are you thinking of the yo-yos? <laughs> it may, there may be a state flag or a previous national no, flag. No, no, no. Mm. I thought there was like a look. Okay, I'll... zero mongoose in the spreadsheet. <laughs> Continue, Chris. Yeah. I'm so yeah, sorry. I'll wrong. leave. No, that's okay. Oh, no. That, that's... I could be wrong, by the way. It's very likely. Um, one thing I did notice, though, is that the I think the most botanically diverse flag uh, is Fiji's. It features a banana plant and a cocoa plant and an olive piece and sugarcane and coconut palm. Bloody wow. hell. It's a nursery. It's practically a flag. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> it's kind of great, isn't it? Yeah, I was impressed with that. I thought it was quite lovely, actually. Quite a nice flag. Um, they're all, oh, speaking of nice flags, uh, shout out to El Salvador and Nicaragua for the only flags that feature rainbows. Oh. They actually have rainbows, yeah. Um, all it, um, do you remember if it's a component of a rainbow? or It's it's clearly the rainbow yeah, shape. Mm. Uh, it's not... I don't think the El Salvador like an, flag like, is so detailed. Yeah, there's so much in there, isn't it? Because it just looks like the stripes, and you zoom in on the image yeah. in the middle, and it's like that's the thing. You want a flag that's easy to draw. Well, they're also this <laughs> is your the, presentation. Again, I'm thinking. I remember learning how to draw the Australian uh, you know, continent with just lines. Mm. Learning that and thinking, oh my god, I have it's like a dark art. <laughs> um, and the and the easy flags are the ones you sort of remember. But yeah, you're right. Um, Nicaragua is, is is incredibly detailed. Um, it also is one of only two, I think or three flags that feature uh, volcanoes. Mm. So, yeah, there are volcanoes, there are mountains, there are um, representations of, of the water, there are waves that appear in various flags. So meteorologic phenomena and geological phenomena come up, but they, they tend to be very much about this is literally who we are. This mm. is where we are. This You will see this if you come here, mm. as opposed to, uh, you know, um, a year rock, which you will not see because they've been extinct for a long time. And you can tell the difference at sight that it's not a cow. Uh, no, you can't. Right. Oh, you can tell it's big, like it's a big, it's a skull with big ass horns and all. Like it's not <laughs> yeah. like you know, it's not Daisy. Um, but it's, <laughs> but whether it's a Yorok or a Longhorn or something, no, Got you can't it. really yeah, tell. Yeah, yeah. So that's a good example of I'm looking at it going. Mm, I don't know, but I looked it up. Where, okay, fine, it. that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But I didn't. I stopped myself looking into why it was there, or yes. at least memorising that. I let yeah. that, which wasn't easy. This by is the all way. your research, by the way. Yes, totally Amazing. all my research. Extraordinary. Yeah, yeah that's so good. Um, it's it's very interesting. Um, there are a lot of human-made things too, and this is the interesting thing because I think when you're putting a flag together, you've got this choice between do all re- represent who we are, who we want to be, how we got here, where we are. There's all those decisions you've got to kind of make, um, and to some extent, it's a question of I want to represent me. Um, without me needing to be there. So, I mean, the maple leaf tells you nothing about Canada as a country, but you, we all recognise it mm. as a thing. So there are human-made things to which are quite the, the absolute other direction. Um, clothing appears on more than 20 flags. Um, scarily, weapons appear mm. on 20 flags. Uh, in fact, if I were to use, and I, this is loaded to some extent, but the most scary or perhaps most violent flag, I think, is Haiti's, um, which has a rifle and an axe and a cannon. Right. Mm. As well as a bugle and a drum, which, mm. you know, is probably military, but might just be a band. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but there's quite a lot, uh, including uh, there is, uh, I think, Mozambique's flag has a machine gun with a bayonet. Mm. So, yeah. There's, but this stuff, it matters. Like, this is how we got here. We fought for this. We struggled for this. Mm. Or we're scary. Or a combination. <laughs> yeah. uh, there are also parasols on flags and wheels and saws. <laughs> Uh, parasol. Yeah, there's a parasol. Um, I'm thinking it's oh come on, brain. It's an Asian flag. I forgot which Asian country it is, which is terrible of me. Um, but I'll find. But it we assume it rains. Well, that'd be the sun. So we assume yeah. we assume that the sun comes out at least. Brunei. <laughs> yeah. Brunei. There a bru- you go. Thank right, you. Okay. Well done. Um, there are also there are crowns on only nine flags, ah, but there is one with a tiara, 
Oh, who's How got the tiara? Well, it is a papal tiara, okay. um, so it's 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 not Miss World. Yeah, so it's, it's I, I use the ter- the word correctly, but perhaps not um, in the most familiar sense. So yeah, the people stuff is interesting. It was it was really intriguing. A lot of these flags have a coat of arms on them, and that's the thing that. You know, it's, it's in the middle and he's very small and quite detailed. And I almost was going to leave it out, but there's just so much richness in there. There's so much narrative in those coats of arms. Uh, the other thing that I noticed is that they change a lot. And these flags uh, have only been around since like you know, 2005 or six, and there's been seven or eight iterations before them. Um, so as you're going through them, you, you kind of um, almost want to go back and look at this storyline. How has this developed? And what politics has been at play for someone to decide that we're taking that off, we're putting this on, we're going to swap mm. these colours mm. around. It happens all the time. You've got to update your flag intel from time to time. Well, yeah, and it, I'm just thinking of the brand identity work, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> someone out there changing the, the colour red to one shade lighter. Um, the thing, though, the overwhelming, and this is, I think, interesting, the overwhelmingly most common features on flags, outside of just abstract stuff, um, is something astronomical. 60%, more than 60% of flags have, have either got a sun or a moon or stars somewhere. And they mean different things, but they're on there one way or the other, which is delightful because you sort of think, that's beyond us. We might see it. I mean, the Southern Cross is, you know, and, and look, we know that some of these things mean something very specific. Some are a religious thing. Um, the, um, the Federation Star on the Australian flag means the states, uh, I think, and territories, I think, yeah. So there are however many points there are, six, maybe seven. There's a number. So it, they mean something, mm. I guess, but the bottom line is they're represented by something that is beyond us and yet we can all kind of share. We all see this thing. It's above us. It's around us. What's intriguing, though, is that even though there's a lot of flags that have moon, sun or stars, that's the only astronomical phenomena. No comets, ah. no planets, mm. no galaxies, um, no nebulae. Not that that would be easy to represent, but there's a whole but no dark matter, I don't think, um, but it was difficult. No, for dark space matter. junk. <laughs> yeah, no space junk. Um, great point, yes. So there is, um, yeah, there, it's, it's interesting what people put on there, but I suspect to some extent that might be um, history. You want the most reliable things, although a comet would be a cool one. Mm. That would be nifty. So, yeah, yeah. so if you're looking at making your own country, you have to design your own flag, uh, invertebrates uh, and comets would be my recommendation. Um, Wide yeah, open. Yes, it's, it's, it's the diversity represents the diversity of, um, of you know, human thought, I guess. Amazing. Chris KP coming to a trivia night near you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Glennis Uges is a board member of the World Federation for Animals and one of Australia's most experienced animal advocates, having contributed over decades to numerous national reviews of codes of practice and animal welfare laws in each state and territory. 40 years ago, Glennis was the sole employee of Animals Australia and is now its CEO. And for her work as a calm bulwark of animal justice, Glennis was last week recognised as the 2024 Senior Australian of the Year for Victorian. To tell us about it, Glenis joins us now. Glenis, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Where did it all start for you? You grew up on a farm? Yeah, yeah. I'm from northern Victoria. Um, My family were farmers, are farmers. So I, yeah, spent my first, well, two decades or so on a dairy farm, mixed farm. So I got to meet lots of animals and know them. That's where it started, um, but uh, it wasn't until a couple of decades later that um, I realised that farming wasn't the way I thought farming was and that uh, factory farming, intensive farming, was a real thing. So that was that was a real wake-up call for me. And then what did you do? Uh, I 
joined some organisations that were concerned about it. Um, I read Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation, back in back in the day, and uh, it gave me a framework, if you like, to say that this is not justice for animals. It's not the way I, I, I know animals. And I wanted to change things. So, yeah, over, over time, I learnt more and more about it. And, yeah, then in 1983, which I know sounds an awful long time ago, it is, um, I was thank, thankful to get a, a part-time job uh, with what well, wasn't called Animals Australia then, but the forerunner of Animals Australia. And, uh, yeah, it's built from there. Mm. And it wasn't fashionable for a long while there. No, not fashionable. In fact, um, uh, I was and my colleagues were seen as extremists, really, or, you know, worried about things that other people were not worried about. Um, I was a vegetarian back then and that was not something <laughs> either. And so, yeah, it was a very different world. And so thankfully it's changed a bit. Unfortunately, I have to say to you, it's not good news for animals because um, commercial farming has grown and grown and the majority of animals now are kept in uh, crowded conditions, confined conditions and in very large numbers. Mm. Do you think about persuasion and advocacy or are you just a natural? Do you study it and know what does tend to work and your calmness has been lauded as well? <laughs> you have to be calm in, uh, in the face of such things. Um, I don't know about it natural, but uh, certainly um, I'm not one to overreact and what I have learned over years, though, is that most people really do care about animals. They don't want to hurt animals. And what I've also learned is that so many people don't understand or know about what goes on because most of it's hidden. And uh, they can be a little defensive. It's the last thing I want. So as an advocate, of course, you need to bring people along with you. And uh, so... And that's what I, I try to do. That is never shame people, never um, judge people, but rather advise them and inspire them, I hope, inspire them to change behaviours. There is definitely, like like you said, a growing awareness, thanks to advocates like yourself and different media exposés. But it isn't always, you know, and yeah, people are becoming aware of like the horrors of factory farming. And people do want to make kind of more informed, better decisions when purchasing different products. Mm. But it isn't always so straightforward, though, is it? Or completely transparent, I guess, with like the labelling of different products and how maybe we might perceive an animal has been farmed and treated to can arrive like as poultry or eggs. Can you kind of tell us more about that, the yeah, standards sure. and practices? Yeah, sure. Look, it, it can be misleading mm. and, and that, that's absolutely true. But mainly it's because it's hidden. People mm. don't realise. Uh, if we talk about – one of the things that people may know about is um, the battery farming the um, or wire fa- uh, cages for hens. And that's one of the ones that was heralded and um, talked about a lot in the 1980s, 90s. And people learned about it. What I always find... Um, or disturbing to some extent, but quite amazing is that some people think that now it's banned and it's not. It's well known, but it's not banned. Um, and in fact, about five million hens are still in all wire cages all day, every day. Um, that is very different, though, in that that's only about 25% of the hens. The 75% um, have uh, been freed, if you like, to free range systems. Not They're not perfect, I have to say, either, but that's another story. Uh, but it's much better than a wire cage. That's only, that change over 
20, 30 years has only been because people have made choices. Supermarkets have responded to those choices as well. And uh, so that's one way to change things. The laws are really, really slow. So as I say, even now, um, laws are at the moment suggested and probably will be put into place, but still allowing hens to be kept in wire cages uh, until 2036. It's still a long way away. So um, those those things, that's not so hidden. But um, if you talk about pigs and pork products, absolutely. People do not know what goes on inside. And the breeding uh, sows, the females uh, in the pig industry, are allowed to be kept in single stalls where they can't even turn around during their pregnancy. They, it, it's just as big as their body is. And similarly, when they're having their um, their piglets called farrowing, uh, they're in farrowing crates. So the um, the sows, the female pigs, have to give birth on a cement metal floor. They can't turn around. They can't properly interact with their piglets. And they're there for four to six weeks. And then they could go back into a single sow stall during their pregnancy. It's just uh, an incredible si- uh, system that... Uh, People don't see, even if you go onto the websites, or particularly if you go onto the websites of the industry, they're not going to show you these things. They're not going to tell you about them. And so then what happens is when you see pork, ham, bacon on the shelves, it's quite disconnected from what's happening. And that's the... um, that's the space that we're in to try and let people know about it. But um, also I think that it really takes um, a change in behaviour which is not something that humans do very very uh, lightly because uh, we've been we've grown up with a lot of information uh, that uh, may well not be true. Uh, it's obviously you advocate on behalf of animals but in terms of your own achievements which is of course why you've received the gong what what is a policy or a change or a, a code of practice that you've been inside and mucking around with and assisted with that remains I hesitate to say, but makes you proud. Mm. Oh, look, I think I, I, what's made me proud is that the greater knowledge of, of issues. Um, the live animal export issue, um, well, that, that trade still continues. But I have to say we've made incredible inroads. I'm so, so proud of our, the courage of our organisation and not necessarily me particularly, but my colleagues who have actually in this case, gone to the Middle East to look at uh, how our sheep and cattle are being treated once they arrive in those countries after, you know, weeks weeks on a ship. And uh, they've taken videos, um, called it undercover if you like, but um, uh, certainly not officially, and brought them back, exposed the issues such that um, the understanding of the public in Australia has changed considerably and we are on the brink of a phase out of the live sheep industry. Um, Live sheep export was, when I got involved, was about 7 million sheep a year going to the Middle East to be killed without any pre-stunning, very different standards to what are in Australia. Uh, That's after a three-week trip on a ship, which in itself is really stressful and many animals suffer and die on those ships. The change that's coming is because of our investigation, so I have to be proud of that. Having said that, still about a half a million sheep are going each year and it'll still be a couple of years before it goes. That's how long things take, 40 years just to get to this point. Mm. Do you think that secrecy is one of the biggest barriers? It's just purely that most people don't know what goes on? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a lack of awareness. I, people have got lots going on in their lives. They're not going to sit down and uh, read, read books as I might have 40 years ago or um, uh, go on and research issues. And given that when you see products on a shelf, we were talking again about pigs and chickens and eggs, for example, um, you're not going to know what's behind them because uh, the industry doesn't want to tell you and uh, we don't always have the voice, the loudest voice in the room. So what's happened is that standards, the legal standards particularly for production animals, are way, way lower than what the community would want if they actually knew. Um, And the problem is that they don't accord with our concern for animals they don't accord with scientific evidence animal welfare science has grown so much we we know so much we know that animals are sentient but uh, that's not reflected in our laws you can't trust the laws you actually have to invest investigate yourself and i luckily now we have great options to uh avoid animal production um, or the worst parts of intensive farming. What does it mean to be on the World Federation for Animals board? Uh, World Federation for Animals is only fairly new. I was uh, a founding director. Uh, It's bringing together uh, all of the major animal welfare organisations around the world and um, we've, myself and uh, international colleagues, formed it about three years ago now and um, what it means is that we are able to make representations for example to the international institutions like the United Nations particularly um, and uh, press for changes for example to the uh, um, sustainable development goals um, and add animals to that that's a major goal of ours Mm. to have animal welfare as a as a strategic development goal at the united nations and were you nominated how did the process work for to be anointed australian of the year for victoria ah Senior Australian. Um, Yeah, well, like anybody, um, you need somebody to nominate you. I had no idea. Um, Some of my friends and colleagues, of course, got together to put that nomination forward. And um, the first I knew of that was when I was called by the um, Department of Premier and Cabinet who who were involved in Victoria and um, told that I was one of four finalists for that category, the Senior Victorian Australian of the Year. And um, I have to say to you, I, it came via a voicemail because I was in a meeting. I worked, <laughs> worked full time. And um, I honestly had to listen to the voicemail three or four times <laughs> to believe that this this was actually happening. And um, and that was, that was enough, if you like. But then... Uh, last week to, to be in the room in the Great Hall at the NGV um, and to hear my name called out as that that person, the recipient, as they call it. Um, yeah, it was a bit overwhelming, Wonderful. I have to say, Dan. <laughs> and then now you go into... I, is there another way to describe it? Are you up against the senior Australians from other states? Yeah, yeah, it's competition. <laughs> <laughs> you battle it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Each, style. There's, there's a senior um, Australian of the Year for each of the states and territories, yes, and so on the eve of Australia Day, um, a, a, someone's name will be called out. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll celebrate with a hopefully much improved ve- uh, vegetarian meal from compared to 1983. Exactly. A vegan, I hope. <laughs> uh, well, congratulations, Glennis, uh, CEO of Animals Australia and 2024 Senior Australian of the Year for Victoria. You'll be heading to Canberra uh, in January and do us proud. Well, you've already done that, but good luck. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Glennis, just thanks. 
，是否啦？Estate Laura Pietrobon joins us to turn her literary nose to the latest in, well, in high art. Morning, Laura. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Now、uh, you're reviewing books. Yes. And today you've got a non-fiction book. Yeah, I do. I know it's a bit left to centre. I know we normally talk about fiction、um, on the show,、um, and for non-fiction books, I've gone with something that's very. Uh, in the current zeitgeist, a lot of people are talking about. I've gone with Britney Spears' memoir,、cool. "The Woman in Me." Yeah, I,、um, I have never. I was never a Britney girl when I was growing up. I was probably her target、um, audience. You know, a young, young thing in the nineties,、um, a preteen,、uh, loved dressing up, loved dancing, loved singing. I was more of a Spice Girls person, but obviously, Britney's influence is all encompassing for people of. My generation,、um, so I wasn't sure, you know, about reading this book until、uh, it came out, and I heard some, you know, early reviews and early things about what had been written and what had been included. I'd obviously spent a lot of time、um, over the lockdowns here in Melbourne reading about、uh, anything that I could to do with her conservatorship, which is, I think, sadly, what she's most known for at the moment, or why she's generally been in the news more recently. So I wanted to read. This and I wanted to see what she was saying, how she wanted to tell her story, and I have to say that my expectations were、um, exceeded in a lot of ways. I think、mm. this is a really—I do read a lot of celebrity memoirs. Most of them are quite old.、Um, like I love a lot of old Hollywood memoirs, and some of them are really just. The the things that they say, you know, that they're painting things with a very、uh, light touch, rose tinted glasses, you know.、Um, lots of coincidences. Lots of coincidences <laughs> and lots of oh, I knew straight away that I was going to be on this. Like Catherine、yeah. Hepburn,、oh, yeah. love her, but yeah, like Britney is so raw, so real, and her story has、uh, so much clarity to it, and. Um, it really is told in her voice and the way that she speaks. She even has a little cheeky note in the acknowledgements at the end. She's like, "If you follow me on Instagram, I bet you thought this would be told in emojis."、Oh, yeah. um, and I think it's just、um, a wonderfully open way of telling her story. And she starts from the very beginning. She talks about her childhood growing up in Louisiana. She talks about the Uh, very difficult upbringing that she had with her parents.、Uh, they didn't have a lot of money at first. They were、uh, fighting a fair bit. She's actually the middle child, which I didn't realise. She has an older brother as well as her much younger sister, and she talks about early on how the pressure was kind of on her to be, or she felt anyway, to be the the peacemaker in the family. She wanted to bring joy to everybody. She loved singing and dancing and performing, and she wanted to make. Everybody happy around her and and give them some enjoyment and that of course leads to her career with the Mickey Mouse Club. It leads to her being discovered as a pop artist in her own right. She was so young. I don't think I realised at the time growing up, being you know like ten or whatever myself, that she was just sixteen when Baby One More Time came out. And within quick succession, you know all those different. Albums,、um, you know, yeah, baby, one more time. I think it's in the zone that had like toxic and things like that on there,、um, exploding with her like me against the music song with Madonna, and then moving on to I think Blackout and another really、um, iconic album. It all happened in such a quick period of time, and. 
uh, she does really well while she might not always be giving you the exact dates and things when when those events were happening she does really well at taking you through the whole picture and really giving you a peek behind the curtain at what was going on in her life and it's quite tragic to see early on how quickly uh, the people closest to her I guess started taking advantage of her um, how much she was affected by that breakup with Justin Timberlake and the subsequent I guess media circus that surrounds that surrounded that um from her perspective especially, you know, it was so um, it was so heartbreaking for her and she really felt like she had to retreat, but she couldn't. She couldn't retreat from the public eye because he was being so open and public about what had happened. And I'm using air quotes for those of us that aren't in the <laughs> studio because his account that we were kind of spoon-fed by the media at the time is completely different to what she recounts in this book. And it's really heartbreaking to see... Um, to see all of that, to then see subsequently her, you know, falling in love with Kevin Federline, having her beautiful children, seeing how important those children were for her, but still being worked so hard. And the, uh, you know, we're not, we're, there's not a, a play by play, I guess, about all the, the machinations behind the scenes, because I guess she still is not fully or if she if she does fully know what kind of moves her father who was I think the main instigator in this conservatorship she was placed under I'm not sure if she's fully aware of what his background machinations were but she knows enough to be bringing it into her story that she could see changes slowly and slowly or looking in hindsight you know where things started to change for her um and you get a better understanding of why she did the things she did, why she, you know, shaved her head, why she, you know, kind of hit that paparazzo's car with her umbrella. Um, and then, you know, it all goes all the way through to her, like, um, uh, I've forgotten the word at the moment, but she was institutionalised. Well, the conservatorship, but she was also institutionalised in a like a, um, a wellness home or mental... Um, uh, mental health hospital against her will as well and kept there you know despite being and I think that's what becomes really clear from from her perspective despite being there being nothing wrong with her if anything all she needed was like love and support from the people closest to her not greater control on her diet and who she could see and the things she could eat and and all this kind of stuff and it's really, really heartbreaking and it just brings into clarity, I think, a lot of the ways that we let celebrities of her generation, um, you know, I think of Amy Winehouse as well, although that is, I will say that is a very different story because there were genuine issues of um, addiction at play there. But the same way, you know, they were thrown into the public sphere so young with these incredible talents Um and that were just treated like trash by the media at the time and, and we all consumed it. And it's a good book, I think, to think about your own way of how you were taught, um, again, coming from my perspective because I was so young when she was do doing her music, how I was taught to think about and all the ways that I'd thought of her. Reading this book was kind of like undoing even further a lot of those things that I think we've all worked hard as a culture or as a me as media people who are in the media or consume media to really analyze why did we do that that was really wrong we need to be better did she reckon with any regret or is there any uh, and I have no idea what she might regret but yeah. is there is there is, is it all self well, 
aggrandizing. One of, one of the things that she um, speaks about was her time making the film Crossroads. And she <laughs> she says here, she's like, I don't know. She's like, I was excited to do it. But she's like, I don't know what happened. I just lost myself in that character. And I think people probably thought I was quite odd because I was almost doing method acting. And she says, because of that experience, I was hesitant to go towards doing a film or, or theatre or anything like that again. Um, and she does regret, I think they offered her or she had the opportunity to audition for the Chicago movie, mm. which would have been really like a really different and fun thing for her to do. And I know she spoke with a little bit of regret about that. I think she regrets, um, although unfairly on herself, I think not kind of pushing more within the boundaries of her conservatorship because she didn't know for many years that she could have had her own lawyer within the kind of like um, agreement that was made. One was appointed to her who... We don't know for sure, but, like, was definitely not helpful towards her, definitely seemed to be more on the side of her father. Mm. Um, so I think that's another thing that she probably regrets. Like, it's a lot of lost time, that conservatorship, 13 years where she didn't really have control over her life, couldn't go travelling, couldn't call stop. She was performing the whole time in Vegas, couldn't take a proper break, couldn't make the music that she wanted to make. So I think there is a bit of regret there, but there is also, I guess, very much, like, a lot, of, a lot of anger still but also a lot of understanding and I think just the main thing and I love that the book finishes on her being quite firm and being like I love being free again and that freedom means I can, you know, post on Instagram or not post on Instagram. I can be silly with my kids or not be silly with my kids. I can, you know, I can, I could perform again but I don't have to. I'm just busy living my life and being free and seeing my sons and and being really, you know, fulfilled in that I was going to ask that. So it does come to a kind of conclusion. Yeah. It, and it's – I almost felt like I wasn't sure where, where she would go and how much time she would devote to the conservatorship. And I will say this book spends a lot of time, like, kind of in the – the lead up and goes through all of her life, you know, kind of from like the late 90s right through to the, you know, early 2010s and then from there that's when the conservatorship starts happening. It it felt like to me it was definitely like in the last third of the book that we were right in the middle of it all and her, her difficulties with it. I think there have been reports that she'd like to continue or write a second volume or go into more details on certain things. But I think just as a book she did, she told the right story and covered the right amount of time and I think it's a really fascinating um, look into you know how uh, a, you know how she made it work and how she came out of the other end of it you know still still here still you know wanting to make the most of things she does talk a little bit about her faith and I think that played a huge part in in her getting mm. through and she is very open about all of the messy stuff as well you know yeah what's her tone like as well specifically like when she because I know she goes into a fair bit of detail like you mentioned yeah. about the breakup with Justin Timberlake yeah. is there like resentment in there like the tone of the way she speaks about it or I, anger I think a lot of confusion like mm. I think a lot of the what comes through to me the most is like you know not not so much I think the anger might be reserved for her family but she also makes a point of saying that she tries not to think about her family too much for Justin I think the the thing I got the most from it is still after all these years confusion about why he acted the way he did because from her account a lot of the things he said about what she did were outright lies you know in terms of the infidelity and the um you know way he 
promoted like his own solo albums off the back of that. Yeah, he had a like whole a film yeah. clip of her like yeah. cheating on him essentially. That yeah. was not true. You know, she talks about yes, I did, you know, I had a kiss with somebody, but it it was a one time thing. It was not like there was not this endless parade of people. Kind of crazy that she's going in. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that she feels the need and maybe has the need to go into detail about 25 years ago I, I kissed some guy, yeah. you know, clearing her name of that kind of I think rubbish. it like, I think that's the thing though because it's so pervasive, you know, what he told everybody. His was the strong narrative for so long and she either felt like she couldn't or, you know, she would do these interviews like that very, that not iconic, I think, Maybe that's not the right word, but that one with Diane Sawyer, where Diane Sawyer asked her all sorts of personal details about her, her sex life. You virginity know, and, was a big thing. Yeah, her, her virginity was a big thing. And, you know, she had to answer because she wanted to be the good girl and she wanted to put forward a good image and make everybody happy, but, you know, didn't feel like she could be like fully herself in that time either um and I think like that's the impression I get it was a lot of confusion about why it happened and a lot of sadness that it did happen as well Mm. um but it is a very insightful one and I encourage people it's a a very quick read you'll speed through it it's not very long like you know I'm gonna say it's about just under 300 pages but like it's very it's a well, big font as well it's a big, it's a big font <laughs> love a big know? font <laughs> and I've heard wonderful things about Michelle Williams reading the audiobook as well I do encourage people if you're curious pick it up have a read have a listen because I think you know it's worth remembering that like part of what happened to this woman was yeah I guess like the greed of the like pop machine and you know the greed of her own family but like we played a certain part in that like consuming media at the time and it's worth I guess thinking and remembering and understanding how that how that came about and moving forward with you know future pop icons we already treat them very differently but I think she makes a good point in at the end about you know freedom to post whatever she wants on social media I think that's a new way that sometimes we uh, you know, grapple with celebrity and, and what they are and aren't allowed to do and, and feeling ownership over them. And we need to be careful. They're people too. Hmm. Yeah. All right. The Woman in Me, Britney Spears, out via Simon & Schuster. Lord of Pietremont, thanks very much. Thank you, guys. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. On November 19th, Argentine voters elected Javier Millet to be the country's next president. And joining us with his breakdown of this political development and what it might portend, we're joined by international relations academic at RMIT, Benoit Kampmark. Welcome. It's a pleasure being with you. Thanks very much for being here. Who is Javier Millet? Well, Javier Millet is one of those characters, uh, just for your listeners uh, who'd be more familiar with, say, with the comparison. He's, a, he's one of those uh, very colourful characters who got recently, very recently elected uh, uh, to the Argentinian uh, Congress, and that was in 2021. So he's got virtually no political experience. Uh, he f- famously uh, touts himself as being a bit unorthodox. Uh, he's, uh, for example, an ex-tantric sex coach. Uh, you know, he is one of those individuals who's very... Um, very much one who claims he will totally upend things in Argentina, very corrupt system. Saw him wheeling a chainsaw? Yes, he is. He's, uh, he's one of those great characters for memes. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, and, and remember, in a country where the voting age is 16 mm-hmm. and uh, uh, a desperate uh, population where you've got uh, 40% poverty, essentially, it's quite a remarkable level, and 140% um, inflation rate. These kind of figures have started to come to the fore as being uh, challenging and uh, controversial, but challenging and, as, and offering an alternative, as it were. 
So what is the uh, – you've mentioned the inflation. I think the economists predicted inflation might hit 200% early next year and that poverty level is remarkable. So is has he been elected because or in spite of his eccentricity, do you suspect? I think a lot of it is in spite of the situation. There's, there's an old um, expression in Argentina which loosely translates to we need to get them out. Uh, but then what happens is they simply put in another set of individuals. Uh, you know, If it's not the Peronista group, which has been in power for a long time, then it's the centre-right uh, conservatives and so on. And the fact of the matter is, under their rule, uh, the economy has uh, gone bust in that sense. And so uh, he's offering a, some very radical suggestions. I think some Australians would appreciate, you know, that, let's face it, the Reserve Bank is not too popular in Australia, but his solution about the central bank in Argentina is to blow it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wants to abolish that. He wants to essentially privatise virtually everything in the state, minimal state interference and so on. His view is that... The ills have been responsible because of the state. Uh, now, of course, you know they, we can always debate about that, but that's uh, where he's gotten a lot of traction in that sense. What does it mean to dollarize the economy? So in Argentina, like other countries in Latin America, the, the idea is because their peso, their uh, respective currencies are very unstable and precisely subject to... Uh, you know, um, pressures and so forth, people tend to use the dollar in many transactions anyway. So what he wants to do is to essentially peg not just the peso against the dollar, but to essentially use dollars in the economy. Mm. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to do that if you don't have enough dollars. You have to start with the base of it. But he's got an economic advisor who suggested to him, well, don't worry about it. Uh, Argentinians have 200 billion US dollars stashed in mattresses across the country. So it, it just spontaneously dollarized. That's well, his theory. All the tantrics happening, I suppose. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Uh, and so what does he does he have the support to even enact what he wants to do? Well, that's, of course, the next stage. Uh, it's... he. Because he's come from virtually nowhere uh, to uh, take the, the keys to the presidency, he, he doesn't have a party base really to build from. At least in the case of, uh, say, Donald Trump in 2016, he grew out from the Republican base. He, he sort of made the Republicans his image. This is Donald Trump. Um, but in the case of uh, Millet, he doesn't really have a base, so he will not have a majority from any context in uh, the bicameral legislature. So it's similar to Australia with two houses, um, and he, ha- he doesn't have a majority in either, so he'll have to convince them that he has an agenda worth pursuing, and that's going to be rather difficult because those conservative forces have not been removed. Mm. And so he's got, he had a public profile. What, what was he... What school of economics was he as an economist? Yes, he's closest to, uh, they call them uh, the Chicago boys, but uh, to make it simple, uh, they're the monetarist Chicago school, um, very much of the view that uh, money will solve everything. It's very nice to think of it that way, but the idea is that you let the economy uh, free as possible to allocate resources and you don't intervene with the process. And it's totally amoral. There's not a moral aspect that functions there. So if there is a comparison, it's probably more accurate to say he's very much a follower of the Milton Friedmans, you know, who's the, the monetarist uh, um, uh, theorist who actually said that essentially you need to let money do the work in the economy and, for heaven's sake, get welfare out of the system and uh, ignore the issue of poverty because that's not a critical issue to the making of money. So the Chicago School became big in Chile in the 70s. 
Um, but unfortunately, the Chicago School, uh, uh, these individuals are very much indifferent to human rights. And that's the problem with Mille as well. It looks like he's going to whitewash the Argentinian regime of, uh, of the 70s and early 80s, the military regime that uh, committed horrendous human rights uh, abuses. He named one of his dogs after Milton Friedman. He yes, yes, he's dog- actually named several of his dogs after classical economists of the monetarist school. Yeah. So he's got individuals such as Murray, Murray Rothbard. Yes, and you, you, you rightly say that uh, one of them is Milton. He's actually cloned his pets. Yeah. These are cloned pets of the Mastiff variety. Um, from And the, the chief one there is after, named after Conan the Barbarian, just, uh, just okay. to make it a bit different. Goodness gracious. So what's the election cycle like? How long does he have? Well, usually they, um, the, the election cycles uh, will be the case of five, six years, that sort of thing, to get things done. Um, but it will be very interesting to see how this is going to work because uh, the, the reality is that he will have a, a stretch, but some of his ideas look to be virtually impossible to implement without some kind of leeway. <laughs> I just I find it very hard for him to to do that. There will be certainly certain things in terms of privatization and so on. He could probably pull through. Um, but in terms of coping with inflation, it's very hard. As you pointed out the economist's prediction, it's very hard to imagine that that would dip, as it were, any time too soon. It would have to keep going up at this point, I would say, before anything else happens. Do, do you think – what does this say about where we are globally that this man has been elected when it seems like he doesn't have a lot of capability of implementing what he promises and also just the fact that he's seems like a bit of a lunatic to work like, really? Well, uh, there's an old um, uh, French aphorism which is sort of like uh, if if something is foolish, respond to it by doing something even more foolish. Uh, so in this particular thing here, precisely because the established powers have been horrendous and precisely because they've offered no solutions and, if anything, have been responsible for blighting the situation, suddenly an individual comes along saying, look, look, look to hell with all of this, let's burn the place down and let's start afresh. That's the kind of message. So a lot of it is based on sheer desperation. It's not really, uh, it's not a coherent view of the world, perhaps, but the fact that he came to power, the fact that Trump in 2016, the fact that there is a lot of division in these things, the populist figure is very much uh, in vogue at the moment. Mm. And it I'm guessing, but I'd imagine the Argentinians who voted for him, if they sense the global feedback is smarmy or negative, that's almost fuel for their Mm. pride in blowing it all up. Absolutely. I think it's one of those great mistakes to assume that external criticism of a particular elected figure is going to necessarily result in any change in a positive sense if anything it reinforces that sense look we've got we've got our lunatic you keep your lunatics that's, <laughs> that's right well javier millet is the lunatic in question <laughs> metaphorically of course uh and we've been joined with his analysis by Binoy catmark you can catch Binoy's writing in counterpunch and dissident voice and he's an international relations academic at rmit Binoy catmark thanks very much it's a pleasure anytime Triple R. So, video games with gaming doyen Adam Christie. Welcome back, Adam. Hello, hello, hello. Hi How there. are you? Yeah, good. It's nice to be here. Bloody oath. Uh, and w- tell us, w- is this a horror one? It is. Oh. It's a spooky, ooky game oh. we're talking about today, which I'm really excited about. I love a good kind of fright game. Uh, so. 
Uh, we're talking about Alan Wake 2 today, which is the latest game from developers Remedy Entertainment, who I guess have been cultivating um, sort of creepy, weird kind of cinematic games for the last decade or so. Um, Alan Wake 2 is their latest. Uh, it came out just around, kind of just before Halloween, basically on the 27th of October. So perfect timing for a game that's going to be all about kind of spooking you and making you feel creepy and uncomfortable. Um, and where to even begin with this one? Because it is so dense, so interesting and so fascinating. Um, I feel like the the first thing to talk about is like, do you like Twin Peaks? Do you like Scandi Noir kind of like horror kind of procedurals? Did you like the Hannibal TV show? Did you do you like kind of weird intersections of FBI agents like exploring crime scenes, but then things get supernatural? Mm. Then Alan Wake 2 might be for you. Um, you know, I get shades of things like the first season of True Detective from this game. It is a really cinematic and incredible experience. Sounds um, disconcerting. It's so disconcerting. And best played in like a dark room with headphones on nope. with all the blinds closed. That's the way I really enjoy playing a good horror game is like really immerse yourself in a situation where you feel like you're going to be a bit freaked out. Um, so Alan Wake 2, which I think is like a triumph. I can't believe that I've said this a few times this year, but easily one of the best games of the year um, is a follow-up to a game called Alan Wake which came out in around and I want to say 2008 maybe like 10 12 years ago now by Remedy and that game followed an author Alan Wake uh, sort of like um, Stephen King-esque kind of you know n narrative where like the, the main character is an author he's writing a novel um, in that game the novel started to come to life and that sort of infected the small town he was in called Bright Falls which was very much a Twin Peaks sort of analog very quirky sort of small kind of northern midwest kind of American town like next to a lake that has like a diner that's very like iconic people are eating cherry pie and drinking coffee it was pulling its influences pretty strongly Alan Wake 2 follows up from that um, 13 years later and starts on the story of Saga Anderson who is an FBI agent who is out on the field with her co-agent uh, Alex Casey and they are solving a mystery. There's been a murder committed in Bright Falls. They are trying to track down a serial killer who seems to be murdering people and removing their hearts from their body. Um, things get supernatural very quickly when Saga and Alex discover pieces of paper, basically manuscript pieces, while they're exploring the town of Bright Falls that tell a story on them and seem to tell a story that involves both of them as characters. And then the events on the pages start coming true over time, which helps Saga start solving the mystery that she's trying to unpack. But also it becomes quite apparent that Alan Wake is writing this story that is on these pages and he's been missing for 13 years and disappeared in Bright Falls and no one ever saw him again. So that's the start of Alan Wake 2, which is sort of like, who is Alan Wake, the author? Where did he go? Why is this FBI agent um, in these pieces of paper and in this book that he seems to be writing and why are they finding these manuscripts around crime scenes and around the town? Um, eventually, what happens very quickly in the beginning of this game is Alan Wake um, resurfaces and appears after 13 years of disappearance. Apparently, he was hidden in a place called the Dark Place, which seems to be like a pocket dimension of reality. We're getting very Twin Peaks here. Um, and... It is through the work of Saga Anderson that he is able to escape, but at the same time he has been writing a book within 
the dark place to help him escape from it. And that's when this the game sort of swaps perspectives and allows you to actually play a second story at the same time where you are Alan Wake inside a sort of strange um, sort of uh, kind of alternate reality, if you will, trying to escape from the horrors of that world to get back to the real world. And you do that by writing a story and exploring the world around you and sort of creeping about. It's it's very metatextual and very odd and weird, um, but it all kind of works together in a really interesting cinematic way. What's the nature of spoilers in video games? Because the, the way you describe it, it's like, oh, wow, mm. you're giving everything away, but of course you have to experience it and play I'm, it. I'm giving the surface level. Right. So what I'm giving you is probably the first two to three hours, the setup for where this story is going to go, and I'm being very cagey in terms of like what is actually done with all of these hooks because how Saga's story interacts with Alan Wake's story and how they come together is really fascinating and interesting and I don't want to ruin any of it for people because there's some really cool jaw-dropping moments in this game, both terrifying and very cool and exciting and and stuff that made me pause and go, okay, I feel like I need to sit down and write my thoughts about what I actually think this game is saying about like what it means to be an artist, what it means to be an author, what it means to explore... Um, your own writing or or feeling like you've failed as an author and as a writer because there is a you know there is a metaphor here for Alan Wake is trapped in like writer's block he can't figure out how to write a story and he feels like he's a failed author but he's literally trapped in another dimension at the same time requiring the help of an FBI agent to get him out there who may or may not be a fictional character that he's invented expressly to help him escape from that world um, it's all very surreal and odd. It has that sort of kind of twinge of like Twin Peaks about it where things just seem strange on the margins. There's lots of odd characters that pop up. Um, one of my favorite characters in this game is uh, Alex Casey, who's Saga Anderson's uh, FBI uh, partner, um, who shares the name of the famous FBI agent that is the star of Alan Wake's novels. Um, which are crime pulp novels that he's been writing for a decade or so. And in Alan Wake's journey in the dark place, he ends up repeatedly visiting the set of a talk, uh, late night talk show, basically, where there's a TV host that's interviewing him about like his career and his books and his writing, talking about books that he hasn't written yet or that he's about to write that might be like pitiful, like (laughs) important parts of how he's going to get out of this place. And during that place, he actually meets the writer of the game, Alan Wake 1 and 2, Sam Lake, who is the visual appearance of Alex Casey. So this dude that's wrote this game has put himself into the game Mm. visually as a character who is also the stand-in for the character of Alan Wake's character in his book. There's so many layers here that's going on here if you get the metatextual vibe. I feel like I've just said word soup. Um, but the idea of, like, the person creating this game... I just feel my brain oozing out of my ear just a tiny right. bit. Like, that super meta. The person who made this game put themselves in this game as a character who they Whoa. are then yes, playing yes. in this game um, in a very surreal... It's like, a bit like Hitchcock, but more... Yeah, and yeah. it's it's this is like a live action sequence where like you jump from being in the video game to watching actors on a stage performing and playing all these roles. And Alan Wake does this thing where it jumps from like it's it's video game sequences to like real filmed cinematic moments that take over the game that you end up watching that all sort of interact with it as well, which is really fascinating and weird. Um, it sort of plays on an earlier Remedy game called Quantum Break, which they did a few years ago. And the idea of that game was 
you played for a while and then your decisions in that game led for you to watch a 20 minute television episode that sat alongside the game and then you would go back into the game and then you would play a bit more then you would watch another episode of the tv series and which episode of the series you got based happened to be based on like what happened in the game so remedy has been playing with ideas of like cinematic television and television structure in games for a few years now and trying to merge them together in interesting ways and I think the most interesting uh, element of that sort of merging is what's come out of this game, which is what we're calling the Remedy Connected Universe now, which is that the last five or six games that Remedy have made are all interconnected into the same world. And there are elements of their previous game stories floating through into Alan Wake 2. Maybe Alan Wake wrote some of those stories. Who knows? Um, but if I feel like I'm in an Alan Wake story <laughs> yeah. right now. Like, it, it's, it's, it's a very surreal thing to be sort of walking through a haunted forest, terrified that you're going to get jumped by an evil cult as <sighs> you're playing an FBI agent. But then at the same moment, you're thinking about the writer that's written the scene for you that you're walking through. And that's sort of what this game sort of plays on. And in terms of how you solve mysteries in this game, it uses a really ingenious system called the Mind Palace, which sort of plays on that idea of like, um, you know, very Sherlock Holmesian thing of like creating a mental space that you can go to to solve problems. So when Saga Anderson needs to think about what she needs to do, um, she can actually visualize herself in a log cabin and up against the wall is sort of like a very traditional sort of like, uh, you know, string and chalk, like uh, paper sort of board where you can like string up ideas and theories and case notes about like who may have committed a crime and mm. who's who's the serial killer, like what's going on in the town. Well, those boards either means you're about to catch a killer or you are one. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, and it's amazing that at any point you can kind of visit Saga Anderson's version of that in her mind. Um, and she also does the thing that I really like from the Hannibal TV show where she can profile someone um, so she can kind of inhabit their personality and think about what they might be trying to say and glean problems to solve and push the story forward that way as well. Ellen doesn't have a mind palace. Instead, he has his writer's room, which he is trapped in and can return to, which has a plot board, which um, features notes and things that he's written to himself that he can't remember about how he needs to change and alter the story of the world around him to progress and escape the dark place, which is really fascinating as wow. well. This is a sequel. This is a sequel. Does it matter? Um, I think you can go in completely blind without having played the first one. Um, uh, I, it was about 13 years since I played the first Alan okay. Wake and I found there's enough here, there's enough interesting stuff going on that you can go in and really enjoy it without having played it. Looks it looks amazing. I watched the trailer. The graphics are like, so real and scary. Probably the prettiest game I've mm, ever played. Cool. Um, but, yeah, um, Why watch a film when you can play one? (laughs) Yeah, play one. And one that has so much to say about, like, artistic process and getting stuck in writer's block and about ownership of his story and and so many other things that I don't want to spoil. I'm what I would say halfway through. And the reason for that is, like, I just get a bit terrified every now and then and have to put it down. Yeah, no wonder you're sitting there playing in the dark. Uh, Alan Wake 2, where do we see it? Where do we use and find Alan Wake 2? It's on PC, Xbox and PlayStation 5. Extraordinary, spooky stuff and a triumph. Yeah, one of the best of the year. Adam Christie, thank you. Cheers. Woo! Ah, That's right. Triple R. 
Jessica Owes, a Melbourne-based author whose second book, Cold Enough for Snow, won this year's Victorian Premier's Literary Award, the 2023 Victorian Prize for Literature, the 2022 Readings Prize, was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin, the Age Book of the Year, and on Thursday it was announced as the winner of the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Fiction. And still presumably reeling from the win, earlier, oh, only a few days ago, the writer, editor and librarian joins us now. Jessica, welcome back to Triple R. Great, thanks for having me. Well, congratulations. I mean, I tried to uh, get a buy another copy on the weekend couldn't because <laughs> it was sold out for obvious reasons mm. what tell us about how you're uh, interpreting the win um oh, i don't know i think with anything like this you're sort of just always a bit shocked um a bit intimidated and overwhelmed with you know all the sort of you know noise around it um but I, for me like personally i think i'm just i'm so grateful for it um and you know, this is sort of, it's been out, I think, you know, since 2022. Um, so for me, it just feels like a kind of, you know, strange and incredible conclusion mm. um, to sort of, you know, maybe a year, two years. Um, and I'm, I'm really grateful to Giramondo, I think, just for the support throughout it all. I don't think any of us would have necessarily expected it to have this longer tail and this sort of run. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I just feel excited and grateful. So do you feel personally as though you've won or the book won or everyone associated with it has won? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, th- I feel like the, the book is kind of won. Um, you know, it's, it's something that is you but a bit out of you as well. And I think, you know, prizes are – they're incredible things um, and they're incredibly necessary, especially for the art sector. But they are so – you know, I always say a combination of a bit of luck and a bit of timing. Um, so I feel that's less to do with me, but also something to do with the book, you know, being out there in a, in a certain moment and mm. um, hopefully reaching certain people. Um, but I think I, I do hope that Giramondo feel that it is their win as well. Yeah. It feels tawdry to almost say, but it, they are the richest literary prize in the nation mm. and the tax-free prize pool is 600000 and you've uh, taken a chunk of that. Did... Did you – is there something a bit – how are you associating with the book now? There's time that's part – does it feel like it's everybody else's book now and not less – as well as yours? Um, not necessarily. I think a book is just so personal. It, it is – you know, it is, it's a part of you in a way um, and you – you write it at a stilled moment in time and that is you at that moment and you do move on from it, but it's still, it's like your past or your youth, you know, it, it always remains with you. Mm. Um, so I guess I do feel that the, the book is, um, you know, still part of me. Um, I guess I feel that maybe the, the, the new cycle, um, a part of that is, isn't necessarily part of me. It's not necessarily part of the writing. That's more something that I'm sort of in a weird way, observing uh, from from the outside, um, but but yeah, I mean it is it's an incredible financial windfall, um, I think, and um, you know maybe the the book is still part of me, but I think the the kind of um, upside of the prize is that for me it means more time to write, and that is also something that exactly. I think yeah is is something incredibly rare and special, and you know happens. Only very occasionally. Um, so, yeah, it's something I'm also really grateful mm. for. Because uh, I'm really intrigued, like, the way, you know, you're talking about winning this prize at the tail end of this book, you know, it was only released last year. Like, how long did it take you to, to write this book? Um, yeah, it depends uh, how you want to count it, yeah, sure. I think. Um, so, basically, it, it was 10 years, um, sort of, between my last book and this book. I wasn't really working on this book 
during that time, I was just trying to work on another project and it was a lot of short stories. I was just trying to yeah, write something that I thought was meaningful and, and worth, you know, having down on the page. Um, but um, the thing is, writing is really difficult. And throughout all of that 10 years, I didn't actually come up with anything that I, I liked very much, <laughs> to be honest, um, except for this one short story about the mother and daughter who went to Japan. Um, and basically at the end of it, I just thought, I'll I guess I'll, I'll try and return to this and um, break it down and build it up from the ground up. Um, but oddly what happened was um, when I sort of went back to that, a lot of the other things I had been working on ended up being um, feeding into this book and becoming the digressions that sort of take place through memory and through the past. It's just I think that they had to find the right um, form and the right container and the right sort of um, narrator. Um, so then when I did that, that the writing actually took, maybe about three months. Wow. Um, it, was, it was pretty quick and I was working close to full-time actually at a, another editing job during that time. It reminds me there's a Monty Python sketch, I think the philosopher's football, where all the philosophers are sitting around they don't they're just thinking about football and then in a flurry of excitement they all play and like absolute champions and it sounds like that 10 years of waiting and then the three months of absolute powerhouse work really that, that's exactly what writing looks like basically we're just a bunch of footballers <laughs> standing around mm. so do you think that there is like so much pressure or maybe like in not just like the literary world but the artistic world of like to move on to what's next to talk about this that's taken 10 years and then you're like no one expected it to have such a long run it's like it did only come out last year yeah um I think you need sort of pressure to make something yeah, continuously something yeah. yeah um I think that there is that pressure for sure I think that is just in general society mm. now we which is such a huge you know um, churning 24-hour cycle of new things um I think that it depends in the liter- literary world um, where you are in it. Like I feel like there's definitely no pressure from my publisher, Giramondo, to do that because I think they do understand that writing takes time. Um, and I think that certainly when you're sort of in this the prize cycle, you do end up feeling a little bit of that pressure. Um, but I think I just have to remind myself as well that, uh, you know, this will sort of die down. I'll go back to my sort of quiet, homely life and you know, in that I, I don't really actually feel pressure to to produce anything or, or write um, necessarily because I think writing takes a lot of time. It is, it's hard, like I said, and to a certain extent you have to um, live a certain amount of life, I think, um, and let time pass to have enough material to um, sort of put into something new. Um, so I think I'm just, I'm conscious of um, making myself let that happen and not to sort of give in to any outside pressure to produce something straight away. You told Mel Cranenberg uh, on Triple R that you could have put more down on the page. Yeah. Uh, do you think about the book and how much – I mean, the fact that you could have put more down but you didn't, uh, I suppose you're grateful that you didn't. Um, I don't know if um, I, I necessarily could have put more down. I think I maybe wanted to in a way. I, I wouldn't mind writing a longer book. Um, but for me, I just – you know, that was kind of it. I think I just naturally gravitate towards a kind of brevity and a shortness. I want every sentence to kind of work mm. for itself to sort of move the story along. I don't really like extraneous um, things sort of going into it. Um, so I think that's just, yeah, sort of how I how I work. Mm. And Cold Enough for Snow, do you 
do you describe the book in the same way that other people speak of it? Are we all talking about the same book here or? Yeah, I think so. I think I find it, I actually find it really hard to sum up. You know, they always ask you for your elevator pitch or, or what it is. Um, but I think that um, I guess I try and write books that are really about what's difficult to say in the world. Um, and so then when you try and say that in a sort of short 30-second or one-minute clip, it's quite difficult. Um, I think the whole book is actually about the difficulty of saying things and the difficulty of language. And yet and it's a strange in a way because everything I wanted to say about those topics I think is simply only in the book and I think that when even when I try and articulate it myself outside of it, I feel a bit more clumsy mm. than the prose on the page. And now as a librarian, how, how do you relate to your to your work as a librarian now and, and I, you got, you would go to work and you would see your book on the shelf, I presume. And um, Yeah, I do. I sort of try and ignore it though. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm not quite a librarian. I just sort of work at the, the library. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a great job. I was just saying to have with writing because um, you're amongst the world of books, but also mentally you can sort of switch off at the end of it and it gives you that time and space. Um, but I guess while I'm there, I'm, I'm trying to focus on, I guess, the job and helping people rather than being myself as the writer. Mm. Do people recognise you though? Uh, no, not yet, which, uh-huh. is, which is actually really good. I, I, I really prefer some anonymity. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and do you do much writing outside of writing in particular? Do you, what are your practices? Do you keep a diary? Do you have a notebook? Uh, no, I sort of, I've always wanted to keep a diary. Like I, I finished Helen Garner's diaries not that long ago and I just thought they were so fantastic and I thought, oh, how great to keep a, you know, diary over decades and to be able to look back at yourself in that way. Um, so I've always aspired to that, but for some reason I can't. Um, I think it's because if I were to write it down, it would still feel like a, a piece of writing to me and then I would want to tinker with it for hours and hours and I think the nature of a diary, it's, it's, it's got to be a bit spontaneous and mm. sort of just on the page. Um, so I don't, even though I would like to. Um, previously, I did not keep a writer's notebook um, while writing this book and I also used to feel a bit guilty about that. Um, but then I did um, read somewhere else, I think there was another writer speaking about their process and that basically if an idea or a concept or a detail is important enough, it'll filter up through your consciousness anyway when you're writing. Um, And so I sort of took a bit of heart from that. Um, And I do think it's true. Like you're sort of looking at things throughout the day. You're noticing you're like a magpie trying to pick things up, you know, semi-consciously, consciously. consciously, um, And it all sort of sinks down. And then if it's the right detail or the right thing to put in that moment, it it will sort of filter up naturally, I think. Mm. Um, right now I am keeping a notebook just because I'm trying to work towards something a bit more sort of research based. Um, so it's just useful to, to sort of write little bits down. Um, so I have since started. Yeah. And what about traveling? Uh, uh, do people associate, cause the, the book deals and we'll, we'll let the listener read it. And of course it's a very popular book, but in terms of traveling and observing other people and the patterns of behavior when you're out, did, are people self-conscious when you're in a car with you? Um, I, I don't think anyone really recognises me in public or knows. Um, and um, I guess a lot of, I guess my friends probably don't even really think about me in that way. So I don't think people are self-conscious. Um, you know, I think it is, it's an inevitable part of being, a, I guess, with a writer that, you know, they're going to be observing things from you. But, you know, I guess ethically, um, it's it's not that I'm just going to take everyone's private details and, and put them on the page. What you're really trying to be sensitive to is 
um, I guess, the, the things of life and the things that sort of feel real. And then you might take a, a fragment of conversation that someone said, but it won't be them. You're, then you might sort of just twist it and change it a little bit so that it feels real and like someone would have said it, um, you know, in a character, I suppose. So mm. um, I, hopefully you know, if anyone's conscious of it, they know I'm not, I'm not being as invasive as that. Of course. And now do you turn into a judge? What do they do with you now that, what are your obligations to the Prime Minister? Um, I, I don't, I don't think I have any, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you'd want me to have any. <laughs> uh, well, it's very exciting news uh, for all of us, really. And it's terrific that Cold Enough Snow has been recognised yet again. What a ride. Thank do you, you feel like it's been a ride? Yeah, I feel like it's, uh, been an incredible ride and in some ways when it's sort of happening you you're not quite processing and I know maybe that's just how I sort of work in the moment I'm a, I feel like I'm a bit stunned and then I sort of afterwards I have to sort of relive it in my head or get little flashes as I sort of drift off to sleep or something um, so yeah it's been it's been a really incredible ride. Oh brilliant well the winner of the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Fiction is Jessica Au. Their book is Cold Enough for Snow. It's out now via Giramundo who got a I mean truly having independent publishers lifting up uh, local art and what could, more could you ask for? Yeah, I think I think it's so important and I think that, you know, every step of the way sort of working with them, they've been so intelligent um, and supportive and I guess just from a general place of actually caring about literature, not necessarily the market and I think that really goes – you can feel that in the book. I certainly felt that while publishing – and I think that actually makes makes all the difference. All right. Well, let us be the thousandth people today probably to say congratulations, Jessica Au, and Cold Enough for Snow is out now if you can find it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Triple R. Let's talk movies with Simone. Hi, Simone. Hi, guys. Hi. How are you? Morning. I'm a little bit broken from the Robbie Williams show. Why is it? Why do you get physical? I always get physical at shows. Really? To the point of being um, profoundly embarrassing to cool. my companions. Are you seated or? No, we were down there. We, I don't know how, but we ended up with like standing tickets down the front. I was up close and personal with the with the RW man and I had a grand old time. Nice. Wow. Have you seen his documentary? Not yet. Okay. I'm going to watch it now. All right. Because I love him. That review coming amazing. next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, this week I've been to see a film called Saltburn, uh, which is a new British film by the director slash actor slash YA novelist Emerald Fennell. Um, who her debut work was A Promising Young Woman with um, Carrie Mulligan, kind of a vengeance thing. I did not like. I found it. I remember your, I think you reviewed that on here. I don't know if I was here or just listening. I I didn't like it to like a Hunger Games degree. I think I got like super neg. A scale of loathing. It was an intense (laughs) scale of loathing. But she's redeemed herself significantly in my eyes with Saltburn. Saltburn is a story uh, of... A, an odd young fellow, a bit of a social outcast called Oliver, played by the infinitely talented Barry Kiergan. Um And Oliver has recently um, arrived at Oxford where he has no friends but yearns to be in the social circle of Felix Catton, the very privileged, gentried Felix Catton and all of his fabulous wealthy friends. Uh, and he, through 
good fortune happens to run into Felix one day and sort of ingratiate himself and they do become friends. Um, and then learning of Oliver's unfortunate circumstances in life, Felix invites Oliver home to his family's large castle to spend the summer where he uh, meets the Catton family, Lady Elizabeth, played by Rosamund Pike, and Sir James Catton, played by Richard E. Grant, and the lovely and slightly lost sister, Venetia, um, and a sort of cast of characters around them. And Ollie proceeds to have a sort of idyllic, strange, eccentric, extremely moneyed um, fantasy summer on the estate. Sweet. And then it goes bad. Oh, Real bad. <laughs> <laughs> what a roller coaster! <laughs> it gets really, really bad. So the whole film has sort of the tone of a like a sardonic Edith Wharton novel. Like if you imagine um, all of those like sort of limp romantic um, celebrations of uh, colonial British wealth and privilege. Brideshead. Yeah. Compared to Brideshead, we visited a lot. Like Brideshead, but darkly funny. And then it gets escalatingly insane uh-huh. towards the end. Um, it is a very. It has been a somewhat divisive film with critics uh, because of the third act, which the third act. I mean, it's very long, kind of rambling in a sense. It doesn't have a really tight structure. But anyway, when it starts to kind of become very operatic and melodramatic in its in its last section, um, some people were lost to it and were like, "No, this is." This is cuckoo. Um, and I was like, woo, this is fantastic. Mm. Let's do more. Uh, even though I recognised it was very, it was getting very, very silly. So is the silliness related to Bacchanalian pursuits? It's kind of. Okay. It, ha- it, it follows a promising young woman in its attempt to kind of carve this delightfully wicked melodrama out of some, um, like, hanging by a thread probability, um, plausibility and also motivation. Okay. Slightly Gee. unclear. It just gets really silly. It might help to say that Emerald Fennell, uh, creative polymath that she is, was a showrunner for season two of Killing Eve. Um, Killing Eve I think was more plausible, but Killing Eve in its extravagances, particularly in its uh, delight in like visually very, very kind of rich textures as settings for its murderous extravagances, there is kind of a parallel there in what's going mm. on in Saltburn. Well, people, sorry, don't like submitting themselves to a universe and then having the rules of that universe taken away. It's like, well, I'm in your universe and you change the rules on me. That is that is true. In this instance, the rules are not changed. The rules are they, – they just go from being um, – Slightly uncanny and odd to just, again, just silly. Hmm. But what is totally amazing about this movie and the reason why uh, by the time we got to that, the the silly run at the end, um, is that the writing is absolutely unbelievably good up until that point. The dialogue is, it just like crackles and fizzes and is the best of... Um, what was happening on Killing Eve and also Emerald Fennell has shares a tie-in with Phoebe Wallerbridge. Um, she did not write on Fleabag but it has a, a similar kind of uh, wickedness and cleverness and uh, irony as Fleabag. Uh, and the ensemble cast, it is like the best ensemble performance I have seen How's in our like boy memory. Jacob? 
Jack Our boy Lordy. Jacob is extraordinary. Yeah. Jacob is he from like Neighbours or something? He was in Euphoria. He was in Euphoria, but he's Australian. Yeah, I know. That's I know, but I don't know if he did Australian stuff or he went straight there. Anyway, he's like the, the naughty jock in Euphoria. He's absolutely beautiful mm. as uh, Felix Catton. It's a very kind and lovable character in all of his kind of statuesque mm. uh, beauty and privilege. He's he's really great. Barry Keoghan, I just adore him. The world adores him. He's so incredibly talented. In this film, I learned why, in my estimation, he doesn't mind being cast as psychopaths and idiots in every role. <laughs> um, and it's because he uh, is ve- he's like really well endowed. <laughs> my, again, wow. That's my maths. That is not fact. That's my maths. That's my maths. In the you world. Were, you see this in the film. You see this in the film a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm you well, so everyone's well endowed. You, <laughs> you see it in the movie. There's a there's a proud and extended nude sequence for our boy Barry, and and there's like, like characters comment on how well endowed he is, and I was like, okay, yeah. how funny. Clearly, very secure in yourself. But well, also makeup pa- parking the. <laughs> That's right. Don't want to sound defensive. Yeah, the lighting. Parking his bits. Yep. God, he is like an. He, he is like one of the greatest talents of his generation. Yeah, he might be an actor that I'll happily for the rest of his career see everything he's in. Yeah, he's Can, so so good. What What do we know him from already? The thing you would have seen him in most recently is the Banshees of Inner Sharon. Oh, he plays okay. the boy who. He's in an Irish film. That's it. Uh, Come with horses. Yeah, Come with horses. Yeah, cool. and Psycho. He's, mm, he's a psycho in it. I think actually it's because there's something unusual about his face. He has mm. quite a dead-eyed look, but man, God, he's so good. He's so wonderful in this. It's such an incredibly beautiful, nuanced role. Richard E. Grant is like his perfect self, like incredibly funny but quite restrained. Rosamund Pike who let's just say is from Pride and Prejudice. Um, Gone Girl. Uh, and Gone Girl, yeah. there you go. She is um, incredibly funny. Mm. Everyone is amazing. The sister who plays Venetia was in the terrible conversations with friends adapted from that equally terrible book. Oh. Um, <laughs> I'm not reviewing that today. That's true. But I felt too positive, so I thought I'd introduce something I don't like. Um, anyway, yeah, they're all magnificent. It is sumptuously directed. It is like just one of those beautifully like opulent things where you get to like revel in other people's disgusting wealth. And then, you know, they get comeuppance for no crime other than being really rich. Mm. So, you know, if capitalism or colonialism offends you, as it, and any reason, as it may, may any well do. Any benefit to being set in 2007? Um, I think... No, I mean, like apart from nostalgia for people like just me, just nostalgia for people and a great soundtrack. Yeah, that's what I was looking at the soundtrack and I was like, "This is awesome!" And then I realised, "Oh my god, it's set 2007." But it's weird, like it's interesting that there feels like there's a parallel in the same way that. Do you remember when Sophia Coppola did Marie Antoinette? Yes, I hated that, but I loved the soundtrack. I love the soundtrack. I didn't love the film, but there's but there was some sort of parallel between the kind of indie sleaze era, what felt like the indie punk rock excesses of the indie sleaze era and Marie Antoinette's, mm. you know, Versailles-based opulence. There's a similar kind of thing going on here. Like there's an indie sleaze overlay to this film as well, which if you don't know what that – you're looking at me confused. No, no, I'm nodding. You know, uh, the, 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 the genre page. 
Well, yeah. the Instagram page, Indie Sleaze, oh, right. specifically celebrates the era of naughties okay. indie rock <laughs> and, and the aesthetic of that period. And there's something, there's a link between Brideshead Revisitors and Indie mm-hmm. Sleaze yep. <laughs> and it's captured in Saltburn. Yeah. Oh, how exciting. It's a delight. Oh, Barry Keoghan is an Oxford University scholarship boy. And it's in cinemas now? In cinemas now. And quite widely in cinemas now. And I reckon it's going to... It's going to go for some awards, I would say. She was already nominated for Best Screenplay for a Promising Woman, bizarrely. But anyway, she's going to be, she's going to deserve it this time around. Nice. Saltburn, Samantha Bully, thanks. Thank you. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.